If you're a regular Geek's Guide to the Galaxy listener, please rate and review us on iTunes or using the podcast app on your phone. We currently have 994 five-star ratings, and it would be great to get that up to 1,000. And I want to give a special thank you to Mr. Flibble is Very Cross, who just gave us this five-star review. One of my favorite SFF podcasts to listen to. Dave is a great host, and his guests are always super fascinating and interesting. I've been listening to his podcast for years. So big thanks again to Mr. Flibble is Very Cross for that great review. All right, so now let's get to our show. Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 487 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Today on the show, we'll be discussing Neil Stevenson's classic 1992 novel, Snow Crash. And this will involve spoilers for everything in the book, so just be aware of that. And I'm joined by three guests. So first up, we've got Anthony Ha, making his 26th appearance on the show. He's a writer and longtime tech journalist living in Harlem. A chapbook of his short stories called Love Songs for Monsters was published by the small press Youth in Decline in 2014. And his fiction has also appeared in Lady Churchill's Rosebud Wristlet. He's the co-host of the podcast Original Content and the comics interview series Panel to Panel. So Anthony, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me back. The next up, we've got Sam J. Miller making his 10th appearance on the show. He's the Nebula award-winning author of the novels Blackfish City, The Art of Starving, and Destroy All Monsters. And his short fiction appears in magazines such as Lightspeed, Nightmare, and Strange Horizons. His new novel, The Blade Between, is currently number two on the horror bestseller list. So Sam, welcome to the show. Always a pleasure. And also joining us today is Lisa Yazik, making her ninth appearance on the show. She's Regents Professor of Science Fiction Studies at Georgia Tech, and it's author of the nonfiction books Galactic Suburbia, Sisters of Tomorrow, and The Future is Female. She also appears in the AMC miniseries James Cameron's Story of Science Fiction. So, Lisa, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on again. Okay, so let's start off with Anthony and to have you tell us about your history reading Snow Crash. I read Snow Crash for the first time sometime in the late 90s. I don't remember exactly how old I was, but... It was definitely a period where I had read a lot of classic science fiction, but I don't think a lot of contemporary science fiction, not much, you know, later than, than William Gibson. And I remember just, especially that first chapter completely blowing me away. And it just felt so funny and inventive and contemporary in a way that, even though I loved all the classic science fiction I was reading, it it just felt so different and, and so much more relevant in a way. Um, and I, I remember it was a little bit of a bumpy experience reading the book because I was, I don't know, let's say, you know, certainly in my teens. And I would hit the chapters where um, Hero uh, goes into the virtual library and has all this stuff about Sumerian mythology explained to him. And I would really, really struggle with those chapters. And it, I think it took me a while to finish it because I loved so much of the early stuff. And then once it got into the more conceptual theoretical areas, I, I really struggled with it. Um, but, but I liked the book overall. And, and I definitely, I think I still have the, the copy I reread for this is the copy I had when I was a teenager. Um, and it's the first Neil Stevenson book I read. Um, and 
you know, continue to be a, to be a fan of his work and, and continue to, to like it, but it's not necessarily a book that I considered one of my favorites. I mean, I think the other times I've, I've been on to do a kind of book club discussion, it's been a book that was like a really core book that I almost knew by memory. This is more one where I've read it, liked it, revisited it once or twice, but I wouldn't say that it's one of my favorites. Yeah, and we'll definitely come back to the Sumerian stuff because I have some stuff to say about that. But And I'm just reading this for the first time. I really wish that I had read this in 1992 because I feel like uh, it must have just been just absolutely mind-blowing back then. I feel like for me reading it for the first time now, some of the thunder was stolen in terms of the the metaverse, you know, that I'm kind of like, oh, this is just kind of like an MMO and stuff like that. But but when you read it back in, you know, in the late 90s, whatever, was was the metaverse stuff, was that still kind of mind-blowing back then? Or was it already happening enough by that point that, uh, that it, it wasn't as mind-blowing? It certainly felt mind-blowing to me. I mean, it, you know, I think at that point I'd already read Neuromancer and some other cyberpunk uh, work. So the idea of conceptualizing the internet as this kind of physical space wasn't a totally new idea to me, but just the level of detail. Um, it was certainly, I think, you know, this was also a period when there were some clunky representations of virtual reality in movies and TV. And this was, I think, the You're first one where... You're talking about the lawnmower man, are you? <laughs> yeah, and then I think there were some bad episodes of The X-Files and, and a few random other things. I, I felt like it was kind of, you know, that the, the, there were these like periodic moments where movies were like, all right, let's like put goggles on our heroes and like, we'll try to find some way to make it look cool. And so it wasn't that Snow Crash was the first time I encountered that kind of iconography, but it was the first time it actually seemed cool. Hmm. Uh, how about Sam? What's your history with Snow Crash? So I have a weird sort of like patchy sci-fi grounding because I've always loved it and I've always read a lot of it, but I was never part of like a sci-fi community. So I had big blind spots in my sci-fi education. And so like, I loved Ray Bradbury and Octavia Butler, but no one ever like told me about a lot of the books that were a little more off the beaten path, which I guess this isn't off the beaten path, but it was off mine. Um, and it wasn't until I went to Clarion in 2012 that I got this sort of like, oh, here's the canon of the stuff that is really formative for what's exciting in science fiction. Um, so I read, I was in my thirties when I started, when I read it. Um, so it wasn't that long ago, um, and I and I loved it then, um, and I remember being really excited about it. About it. And actually, I, Anthony, counterpoint, um, really loved the 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 chutzpah of the okay, we're going to cut away to some action, and then we're going to cut back to the scene in the library where someone is explaining Sumerian mythology to us, and we're just going to keep it's going to go on for a really long time. I've always <laughs> had a fascinating relationship with info dumps and how chunks of backstory and, and world building are communicated. And, and I, and I really actually love it. <laughs> um, and I think all the things you're not supposed to do are often done really, really well. Um, and so I really enjoyed those, those bits. Um, you know, I don't know if this is the space where we should talk about how we feel coming back to it now, but my history is that I came to it late um, and really loved it. Um, the first time that I read it. Um, also, this is me revealing a way in which, I am a bad person, but I have a really hard time with long books and, um, you know, 
the 500 mark. It's, it's hard for me to mess with a book that goes beyond that. So it's rare that I do. And so that's why I've never read another Neil Stevenson book, because as much as I love this one, it, it's a skinny one at 559 pages. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, definitely, like, as speaking as someone who does a weekly podcast <laughs> where I have to read a book, you know, pretty much in a couple of days uh, to get ready for uh, the show. Yeah, like a, a 500 and 59 page book is is rough so yeah uh that that stuff and and yeah and, and that's probably a reason too that i haven't read any other st- i read actually I, you know i interviewed neil stevenson back in around 2010 2011 uh whenever ream d came out so i read that and but uh the, these two now are the only stevenson books that i've read and yeah the fact that they're so encyclopedically long uh is definitely a, a been a factor in that um and so then how about lisa what's your history with snow crash Right. So I came to it in my 20s. So nicely between the two of you, um, which is kind of nice balance. And I read it in the 90s, but fairly soon it was after it was published. Uh, And I was reading it as part of my, well, in part, just because I read science fiction, but also I was reading it for my dissertation. So I was thinking about it um, really a lot in relationship to uh, William Gibson, to the Sprawl trilogy, and then to Pat Cadigan's Sinners. And uh, so that's something, you know, and, and so it's interesting for me. Um, the the metaverse stuff was cool, but it wasn't the stuff I was most interested in because I was actually just thinking, I was thinking about labor and, and, and representations of capitalism in literature and, and different kinds of technologically, uh, technological means of um, interfacing with capitalism, I guess. That dissertation became the basis of my first book and I was just re-looking at it today and I'm like, wow, the things I was interested in then are not even remotely the things I'm interested in now. I mean, a little bit like the race and gender stuff, but otherwise, um, it was interesting to reread because I, it felt in some ways very different. It was the first time I had just sort of read it, I think, on its own uh, merits. So that was kind of interesting. Um, but I have to say, the first time I read it, I'm with Sam. I love The Librarian, and I still love The Librarian this time. Um, you know, as a grad student, I desperately wanted a librarian. That would have been <laughs> so handy to have while I was writing my dissertation. And now as a professor, I, I still want a librarian. I mean, for real. Like, huh. How fantastic would that be? Jeez. So that's like the best part of that for me. That's the, the exciting fantasy part, I think. Okay. I do, I want to, I do want to say the librarian for a little bit later. But I mean, I, I de- definitely the thing that interested me most about the book was, yeah, the sort of anarcho-capitalism stuff mm-hmm. of this future I thought was really, really interesting. Um, mm-hmm. So that was definitely in the, you know, in the opening couple chapters that was definitely the thing that that really um you know, caught my interest mm-hmm. um so maybe i'll just explain about that so 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 the world of this novel it's in it's set in mostly in los angeles uh and you know the novel was written in 92 and and it's about 20 30 or so years in the future it seems like so it's around now uh you know because uh, you know there's references to like the vietnam war and, and world war ii and and stuff so we're not too far from that um but so in this future the um you know the the u.s government has there's been some sort of hyperinflation and people use billion dollar bills as uh you know to sort of pocket change and so the u.s government has collapsed and has sold off most of its assets including the military and the cia and stuff have all been privatized and so there are these things called f-o-q-n-e's franchise organized quasi-national entities, which are, you know, like private companies that are franchises and they have little pieces of property all over the country, I guess all over the world, that kind of operate as their own independent 
countries, basically. They sort of make their own laws and enforce their own uh, you know, penalties and stuff like that. And then if you can afford it, you live in these burb claves, which are basically gated communities that also kind of operate as independent city-states. Um, so I guess, Elise, did you want to pick up on any of that? You said you, you wrote a, a dissertation about this. Is there anything well, else to say about that? Yeah, I wrote about this in a chapter in my dissertation. But yeah, um, you know, one of the things that was was really interesting and that I find still really interesting in in this world, right, is it's not just that uh, political authority sort of gives way to corporate and gang authority. That's a pretty standard cyberpunk move, although I I think that uh, Stevenson writes it real large and bold, and that's pretty cool. But um, one of the things that that still is really interesting, right, is the sort of the commodification of race. Uh, and, and the way that identity uh, becomes something that's so easily uh, sold in some ways. And and uh, that so much of the book feels like people trying to figure out ways to like plug in with authentic uh, racial or cultural or ethnic identities. And, and you're almost always thwarted. It's, it's really not a world that kind of uh, says, yes, you can build these alternate communities uh, through identity. It, it's really kind of capitalism wins in the end. It's, it's, it's impressive. <laughs> Mm-hmm. I also just want to note, uh, Lisa, that you're uh, you're obviously a big cyberpunk fan because you yeah. named your son after Case from Neuromancer. So yeah, nice move. <laughs> oh yeah, but you know, of course, he's just changed his name now. He spells it with a Q, so it's it's now no, it's his name now. It's no longer uh, our any of ours. It's no longer a science fiction thing. Yeah, <laughs> but I mean, but it does sort of say what a big. I guess is that a, it's fair yeah. to say that you're a big cyberpunk fan. Carl just in talk about it. Yeah, absolutely. I grew up in Detroit in the 1980s. I mean, how can you not be a cyberpunk <laughs> when you have that kind of background behind you, right? Uh-huh. Um, Sam, do you want to say anything about this this future with these franchises and burb claves and all that kind of stuff? Yeah, I mean, I think it, it's it's really indicative of where I think the strengths of this book lie because it's so ridiculous. It's like so absurd. It's not anyone like. Um, it's not like anyone would believe that this is somebody's pr- attempt to predict what the future would look like, right? It's just, you know, it's just just the craziest scenario you can imagine um, where some guy on a plane, you're like, that guy looks familiar. Oh, right. He's the president of the United States. But what is what even is the United States? Um, like everything has been so transformed by capitalism. In, in a way, this has a really strong sort of golden age Alfred Bester vibe to it. It's just, it's all the things. It's not one science fictional concept. It's many crazy ideas um, that that are that are being tossed around. And most of them are just absurd and ridiculous um, and fun and fast paced and and witty. Um, and and so yeah, I mean I think that that as a as an anti-capitalist, um, I find this world entertaining, amusing um, speaks interestingly to a a funny analysis and critique of 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 American capitalism, but it doesn't feel like you know. I, I feel like you you read William Gibson and you're like, oh, this is like there is so much verisimilitude on this. The you can feel the grit, you can feel the texture. This is really supposed to make you feel like this is a scenario. Um, and Neil Stevenson is like this cartoon, this anime cartoon <laughs> race is hilarious. Um, but but not, you know, and, and that might be why things like the metaverse don't age super well um, uh, is because it is it is it, it compared to the real world of this of this story, which is so frenetic and, and, and exciting. The, the metaverse feels really familiar to us. 
Uh-huh. I guess I'll just explain because it might come come up later that there is a remnants of the federal government in this novel called the Feds, but they basically only control one building. Um, although they they still sort of claim authority over the whole you know continental United States, but but don't really have any the money or manpower to really um, you know enforce uh, any kind of rules. And we're told that they get a significant chunk of their uh, financing from selling like tourists, like tourists. <laughs> Uh, things in in Washington D.C. You know that at the uh, there are sort of the remains of those uh, memorials and everything. Um, so yeah, so it is this kind of really sort of satirical, parodic uh, kind of future. Um, on Wikipedia, it says that you know some number of critics have um, you know called this a uh, you know parody of of cyberpunk. So I guess we could get into that. I mean, An- Anthony, what do you think? Do you think do you see this as a parody of cyberpunk or or not? I don't see it as a, as a parody of cyberpunk per se. I think it's, it's a cyberpunk novel that just happens to be more satirical and funny than most are, but I don't think the targets of most of the jokes is to make fun of cyberpunk. I think the, the things that are really funny, I think often are more about, you know, the inanity of office culture. I mean, one of my favorite things is like some of the memos in, in the, uh, in the book (laughs) and, um, and, you know, suburban life in the 90s. I mean, it seems like the the satire isn't really aimed at cyberpunk. It's more that it's like, hey, what if we took the framework of a cyberpunk novel, but we we made it like fun and frenetic and funny? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, like one of the characters works for the feds and then, you know, she gets these memos and, you know, it's recommended that you spend 18 and a half minutes reading this memo. And, you know, it, it sort of goes through what happens to you if you take too long you know, or too, too short or, you know, and it's all kind of, uh, really strict. Um, but, um, I guess let's get into the characters though. Like, so, so our main character is named hero protagonist. Uh, this is hero H I R O. And, uh, and then our other main protagonist is, is named Y T. Um, I guess. So, so Anthony, what did you, what do you think of those, those main characters? Uh, kind of what was your, initial impression of them when you, when you read this? I mean, I found them very engaging and I, I mean, I think that 16 year old Anthony finds hero protagonist to be a much more clever and funny mm-hmm. character name than 38 year old Anthony does. But, um, but it still it is fine. I think I'm also um, particularly after reading uh, Cryptonomicon as well. I, I have a little bit of, unease with Stevenson's treatment of, of Asian characters, where I think he definitely knows a lot about, particularly about Japanese culture, as he calls it, Nipponese culture. Um, but at the same time, I think there is still a little bit of exoticizing going on in a way that, that I'm not crazy about. But at the same time, I mean, Hiro is this very unique and interesting creation. And I mean, they, the idea of, oh, what if like this cool hacker was also literally a ninja seems really absurd on the face of it, but I like the way he balances the elements of, um, you know, uh, the, the fact that like on some level, Hiro is a complete badass in the virtual metaverse and a giant dork in the real world. But then over time, he's able to use more and more of his virtual skills to actually be a badass in 
the real world in a way that I don't know would work in a, in a more realistic or serious novel, but, but I found really enjoyable and just a lot of the, the riffs on like sword fighting and bringing emotional, like, you know, I forget exactly emotional intensity or something like that to sword fighting. That was all great. Um, and I, I really like the relationship that, that he and YT have. So YT is like the, this courier um, who they basically just catch rides with cars on the highway and they're on their own skateboards. And um, I love that they have this kind of just pure friendly work relationship. Maybe there's a little bit of a crush thing going on, but, but it's really more just about kind of respect and um, kind of flitting in and around each other and going on their own adventures together. I almost wanted a little bit more hero and, and YT time together, but um, I think like as sort of, the viewpoint characters for this very kind of madcap zany adventure. I think they work really well. Yeah. Uh, let me just explain a couple of things. So yeah. So YT is a teenage girl and she has this skateboard with smart wheels. So the wheels somehow kind of like telescope and retract as you're going over rough terrains, so you can kind of ride the skateboard uh, basically anywhere. It seems like. Um, and then as the story opens, hero is working as a pizza delivery person for the, the mafia, which is one of these sort of franchises that, and so they're, you know, they have like mafia um, windbreakers and stuff, you know, it's all uh, operating very openly. Um, and yeah. And, and as Anthony mentioned, hero has this sort of background as a hacker where he was really one of the central figures in creating the, the metaverse, which is the sort of like the main VR uh, environment that people use in this world. Um so then how about, how about Lisa? What did you think of the, what do you think of our main characters? You know, I liked them the first time around and I liked them a lot the second time around. And, and I'm with Anthony. I actually wanted to spend more time with them. And I felt that especially this time when I was reading it, because I did enjoy their relationship. It's just, it's effortless. And, and he writes it really effortlessly. And I think that that's cool. And I think we should all aspire to have friendly relationships with people around us like in that <laughs> book. I mean, honestly, it's great. They have a great relationship. Um, so I really, I, I liked that uh, about them. Um, you know, I, I, I sort of wish YT were maybe two or three years older um, because I, I think that the edginess that he gets out of making her 15 is problematic. Um, and I think it's become more so over time. Um, you know, I mean, she's pretty cool in punk rock, but I don't know. There are some moments where one wonders. Um, well, the, and the, the she doesn't really seem... She doesn't really yeah. seem like a 15-year-old girl no, to me. she's not I mean, written like a 15-year-old. No, I don't think so. Yeah, I mean, she seems like super... I mean, she's super... I mean, she's never scared, um, you know, or like... Um, I, I, and I guess this this sort of goes with the book having this sort of... This maybe Sam was saying, this sort of comic book kind of vibe, but the characters yeah. are all like super cool, super composed. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, never well, have... Go ahead. Oh, yeah. You know, it was supposed to be a graphic novel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Stevenson so, says in the afterword. Right. That, so, and I think I think you're right, though, that that's where that comic bookiness maybe in part comes from. Yeah. Um, uh, so how about Sam? Um, what do you think about about these characters? 
I mean, I'll start with YT, who I love and want to spend a lot more time with and get some of the best lines in the book. Like when the the book's like essentially main villain, like Raven is like the functional villain, but Rife is the sort of like um, big picture puppeteer villain. And he says, I don't have time for this um, adolescent banter. I grew up specifically away from this. And she says, it's not that you don't have time. It's that you're not very good at it. Um, and she just gets like all these great scenes. And so, yeah, like I want the movie to, to follow her a lot. Um, uh, and, and actually the fun part about coming back to a book that you read a long time ago and really liked is that you realize all the stuff you stole from it without <laughs> knowing. Um, and so, yeah, there's a character in my novel, Blackfish City named Sock, who is like a, a slide messenger in this futuristic city, which is a hundred percent YT DNA um, transplanted into a genderqueer, non-binary, um, uh, essentially courier in this futuristic floating city. Um, you know, I, I, yeah, I have, I have strange feelings about hero protagonist. And I, and I think that as much as I love this book, I think it's a really great sort of um, example of the limitations of the well-meaning straight white dude. Yes. Um, like I, I, I appreciate that this is an attempt to diversify cyberpunk and that there's, there's characters of color who have agency and get to do things. Um, but I, I do, I do wonder if there's some like fetishization or exoticization or like, let me show you how much I know about this culture um, going on. And I also felt that I don't know if Neil Stevenson is Jewish. Um, and, and, and I looked it up and I'm, and I'm not sure, but I, I did feel a certain way about some of the, as much as I love the librarian scenes, some of the, the sort of attempts to um, invoke uh, uh, Jewish history um, and, and biblical scholarship um, which side note, I am not <laughs> the good, the good Jew who would be able to say where it's full of, 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 of BS. Um, but it, I wasn't sure, you know, where, where, where it was, um, creepy and where it wasn't. So, um, I think that it's, it, it speaks to like the importance of this book and how awesome it is that now we have so many authors, um, who are not, uh, white dudes uh, uh, writing and, you know, being bestsellers and winning awards and telling stories that I think um, are are just as exciting and, and, and solid as Snow Crash, but th- without that sort of like creep factor that 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 I don't I, I mean, I'm not saying that I'm, I'm that it's that it's su- super creepy, but it makes me a little um, unclear uh, and uncertain. Well, yeah, I mean, let, let me say, I mean, so, so my overall kind of trajectory with this book was that I thought that the first 200 pages were great because I love the world. And it seems like there was a pretty good uh, character development with um So we're told that, you know, Hero, um, you know, there was this guy. I'm not sure how it's it's like David with a five instead of a V. I don't know. If, is there any canonical pronunciation for that? Um, but anyway, that the two of them sort of, you know, created the metaverse along with Juanita, this who was like hero's girlfriend and then later married david and um i don't know and i felt like all that was pretty well done and i had a you know hero seemed interesting and he had this sort of this interesting background with his parents and and all this stuff and yt had this relationship with her mom and and everything and then um i felt like as the book went on like the the character development kind of just dropped out uh and we never really saw much of juanita or david I mean, he's like in a coma, but, you know, he could have come out of it. Um, and um, and so, yeah, and there was just like so many characters and so many organizations and 
Uh, and it got really, really complicated. I mean, so there was, and, and it's all cool. I mean, like everything in this book is super cool. Um, but I did sort of feel like the characterization, like the character development, like, like I was saying, like, uh, there was no sort of emotional vulnerability or like heart to heart moments really, or miss, uh, uh, you know, people feeling regrets or, or anything like that. It, it just felt very, very on the surface. Um, and so, so that was kind of my, my biggest issue with the book. I don't know if anyone, does anyone disagree with that or is that pretty much, does everyone pretty much agree with that? Oh, I think that's I exactly right. Oh, I was going to say, and I literally, I looked when I got bored this time, it was literally page 200 where I, where I was like, <laughs> this is just not, it's not keeping up the pace. <laughs> Sorry, Anthony. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that to a certain extent, um, that's just not necessarily what the book is trying to be. I don't think it's fundamentally a novel about character. It's a novel about cool ideas, big action set pieces and and jokes and satire. And, and so on some level, I'm just like, okay, I accept this book uh, on its own terms. And, and I'm not trying to have a, a deep emotional connection with the characters. But certainly I, I did, you know, both in the past and in this current reread, I, I do have moments where I just feel a little kind of, fatigued with it and and like mm, like okay you've tried to put so many different things in here um and and it's still fun and i'm and and i enjoyed reading it but it, i don't necessarily leave it feeling like i like like it, it feels a bit light maybe yeah okay so 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 the plot basically is that there's this virus that kind of infects people's brains and allows them to be controlled. And so there's this telecommunications magnate named Rife, and he's just trying to infect as many people with this virus as he can so he can control them. And he's doing this by sort of contaminated blood through a chain of like um, televangelist church franchises that he owns. And also it's this data, this virus is somehow encoded in binary code and bitmaps. And if you show it to hackers and infects their brain that way, um, I forget if there was maybe one other way they're spreading it. Um, but, um, but so, so, but so that's basically the, um, you know, the overall plot. And then there's this, um, as Anthony mentioned, this sort of backstory with this, of, of like where this virus came from and how it's affected human history and religion and stuff going back to ancient Sumeria. And uh, there's 65 pages of material uh, about the backstory of this virus. And that was too much for me. Uh, and Anthony said it was too much for him, but, uh, Sam and Lisa both said they really love that stuff. Um, so why don't we delve into that? So, so Anthony, is there anything else you want to say about why you're anti, uh, antivirus or I guess that's, that's gonna, I mean, I would, I would actually say that it, it was really a bigger issue. I think when I was younger and it was, I just, you know, read books a lot for, for plot and character interaction and the info dumpy stuff had very little appeal to me. Um, and, and it's funny that you say that it, it was 65 pages because it actually in, in my head after that early kind of struggle with it in my head, that's like, it's maybe 30 to 50% of the book. And then going back, I was like, Oh, this is, this isn't so bad. I mean, this is very info dumpy. Um, and probably you could have cut at least 30 to 40% of it, but it, um, you know, is, it doesn't feel quite as, uh, as long as you, I think that the, the problem is that if you're reading the book for the plot, there's, there's, uh, it becomes a distraction where like at key climactic moments, 
suddenly Hero will <laughs> jump back to the library and have a discussion about this stuff with, with the librarian when he's like about to have another sword fight or something like that. And so um, especially on a first read, especially if you're younger, I think your, your foot is just kind of tapping impatiently. Like, why am I reading about this? Um, I, I would say my critique of it now as someone who's maybe a little bit more patient is I also, I think it's a cool idea. I'm not necessarily convinced that it's a particularly deep one or one that actually changes how I look at language in the real world. Like, whereas I compared to something like, um, you know, Babel 17, the, the Samuel Delaney novel, which from what I understand, I mean, I'm, I'm not an expert on linguistics, but, um, that that is a novel that it's in some ways based on some outdated theories around how linguistics uh, functions, but it still was a book I remember reading and thinking, oh my god, like wow, like language is so powerful and it it works so differently than the way I thought of it. Whereas this felt it's a cool kind of MacGuffin for the story. It was interesting learning about some of the mythology, but there were times where it felt like it was a lot of words just to have Stevenson essentially say, man isn't language just like a virus? Isn't that cool? And <laughs> I was like, I, it is cool, but it's not maybe worth quite so many words. Yeah. And, and just to very briefly sum up, like, like, so, so basically the, the idea is that back, back in ancient Sumeria, there was this cult that worshiped this goddess Asherah and the worship of her was spread by t- temple prostitutes spreading, you know, through blood um, infecting this virus and then there was this ancient Sumerian Enki who had these tablets to kind of like use neurolinguistic programming to program program people's brains to be immune to this Asherah virus. And then also the the Deuteronomists who, you know, wrote the Bible or, you know, oh, a bunch of the Bible wanted a codify, you know, a religion codified in in a book so that it would also make it harder for this virus to propagate. And so it's like this whole story, it's like this like conspiracy theory, like um like Da Vinci Code kind of thing about like all of history has all been about the this vi- people trying to spread this virus versus people trying to stop the spread of this virus, which continues into the present. Um, but so Sam, so you, but you said that you were really into this. So do you want to say more about kind of what what kind of really interested you about this this whole idea? Well, I think it's a similar thing to what Anthony said of like, oh, this is deep. This is oh <laughs> no, no, maybe it's not. Um, and and I I don't know if I got smarter or stupider in the 10 years (laughs) since I last read this book. Um, But I remember remember enjoying it in terms of like buying it. Like I bought the idea, like the central, like, oh, this is interesting. Um, This biological war, biblical biological warfare that resurfaces after lying dormant in our brains, whatever. Like I bought it and now I'm like, but it's a computer virus and it's a drug. And, and, and I don't, I don't really think like, again, it's, it's, it, I guess it's, it's not supposed to convince you with its robust scientific grounding um, so much as, as be really cool, um, which it is, but also, um, you know, not that deep. And, and that when we get into like global conspiracies surrounding Hebraic, mythology and potential conspiracies of Jewish priests. It it feels a little like we're venturing into some like scary territory that I don't think Neil Stevenson intended, um, but that still feels kind of like protocols of the elders of Zion. Um, and so, yeah. Although like, I, I will say that the, the, the Hebrew priests are the good guys in this 
telling because they're the ones fighting the evil. Violence. Yeah, but it's also like this is a holdover. Like Ashura is part of the Hebraic pantheon prior to the sort of reevaluation of um, Judaism as a like fully we only believe in one God um, be, uh, focus as opposed to like the we believe in many gods, but we only worship the one. So uh, you're right. But again, like anti-Semites are not renowned for their attention to detail. Um, and I could see folks um, coming away from this with like a general feeling of like, mm hmm, uh, that sounds right. Um, but again, that's not that's not Neil Stevenson's intention um, or, or even necessarily his impact. It's just a, I guess it's just like a, a, a point of personal uh, discomfort for me that is is or isn't grounded in reality. I mean, so you said you said that you really you really liked this the the sort of academic researchy kind of aspect of it. Yeah, well, yes. Well, I, I, first of all, I just sort of I like the idea of the librarian, right? Just as a as a trope, um, as a, and as a device, I'd want one. And I I did like that the whole backstory. Um, I I agree with Sam that it sometimes goes in you know places that don't seem entirely thought out. And you know, Neil Stevenson's very ambitious. He's trying to put so many ideas here together and hope they kind of all fly. Um, one thing that's interesting that no one has talked about, it's not just that language is a virus. Like what's interesting is the use that people put that virus to, right? Which is to appropriate bodies uh, for the production of uh, for the production of goods that don't, you know, go to those bodies themselves. So it's thinking as much about labor um, as it is thinking about language. And that's the part of it I, I still find interesting, actually. Um, but then there's a lot of yeah, sort of Da Vinci Code types uh, historical sleuthing that I do have to admit I sort of skimmed through. And uh, one thing that I really hadn't noticed before, but really struck me this time is the good guys are guys. Like this is such a gendered narrative and it's kind of freaky. And, you know, thank gosh, or, you know, it's like the whole story is, well, thank goodness that those like monotheistic men came around and like imposed this uh, mental and physical hygiene on us by switching us to book learning and forcing us into monogamy. And I'm kind of like, really? Hmm. I don't know. Um, yeah. You're, so, you're saying know. that you're saying that it, historically that the, the good guys were guys like the. Well, that's what the that's literally the story that Neil Stevenson tells. Like at one point, they're like, thank goodness the Deuteronomist showed up and created this prophylactic religion, right? Uh, by turning us to book reading. And also, and it literally says this, and they did other things like create monogamy so that we wouldn't get infected by these viruses. And I'm kind of like, really, we're gonna justify like patriarchy as like a defense against disease and mind control? Seriously? Hmm. I don't know, just kind of the logic there. And again, you know, I'm sure that this was nothing that Stevenson intended, but when you're throwing a lot of ideas together, you maybe sometimes lose control of your narratives and and then, you know, it, it, words speak what they will sometimes. Yeah, well, I, I think that is true. I mean, like, if you don't know, like, um, you know, sort of in sort of pre-biblical times, uh, this is my understanding, is that the the Jewish religion was sort of polytheistic. And so there was this god El, and then there was a bunch of other gods, including Asherah, who was like his wife, basically. And then by the time it, and there's, you can see sort of hints of this, like in the early books of Genesis and, and so on. Um, but but basically, by the time it got codified into the the, the Bible, uh, they kind of like cut out Asherah and they cut out the other gods and made it. No, we just worship this one God. And so, yeah, it is. It is. It was kind of like you could definitely see that as a very sort of patriarchal, like kicking out the feminine aspect of the religion um, when that happened. 
So no, I, I definitely I hear what you're saying there. I mean, but in the present of the story, you do have like YT is female and um, Juanita is female, so there are like you know good yeah women yeah. you know women uh, on the good guys side absolutely and the women are all defined by their families and the men are all defined by their labor i mean you know stevenson he tries really hard but i think you know again just as with race he hits his limits on gender let's just agree on that maybe yeah um i think this was i think he was pretty i think he was like i don't know how old he was actually i think maybe in his 30s when he wrote this mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. i think it was like his third novel and his first big novel so you know yeah i mean it wasn't maybe you know, doing everything right. But, um, you know, certainly doing a lot of stuff, you know, that was yeah. really, really cool. Um, I guess there's also this thing. So, so another aspect of the plot is that there's this thing called the raft, which is this, um, so Rife has this big aircraft carrier and then there's this agglomeration of other, uh, other vessels that have all kind of lashed themselves together to form this sort of floating city. And it floats around the world. And then, uh, I guess I guess people uh, sort of um, refugees are, are sort of going to it, and then part of his plan is that they they get infected and come to the raft, and then uh, you know once it floats by the west coast of North America, then they're all gonna he's gonna sort of order them to uh, you know enter North America, and that's the sort of like Bond villain you know uh, sort of plot uh, in the climax of the story. Um, and this, um, this, this idea of the floating cities, I think is, is, is kind of cool. Uh, I don't know how much it had been done and like, like an idea like this had been done in science fiction previously. I don't know if anyone, I guess maybe Lisa, would you, you might know, were there any like cities made from ships all lashed together in science fiction prior to this? Or is this, did this kind of like popularize that idea? Uh, water world maybe, but isn't that around the same time? Um, I, so I can't really think of any. Uh huh. This was ninety two. I don't. Was water water world was ninety five? Yeah. Okay. See, right around the same time though. So obviously, it's maybe something in the air at that time in the nineties. I can't think of any earlier science fiction stories that are are sort of raft world stories like that. Uh-huh. Uh So I'll just say it's it's kind of interesting that um you know this and this I don't this novel's been really really influential on people in silicon valley like i started making a list of everyone in silicon valley who's said who cited this work as inspiring them and i just sort of stopped at a certain point because it was basically everyone you know um but but so one of the people is peter Thiel, and he's actually Mm -hmm. funding this thing called the seasteading institute right now to try to actually have sort of cities floating in the ocean or you know whatever settlements floating in the ocean kind of outside the reach of governments so that's that's one way this this novel, in addition to the metaverse stuff, has been influential. And they bought a giant cruise ship and they were going to fill it up with apartments for millionaires so they could live on the ocean forever and be outside of anybody's jurisdiction. And spoiler alert, it's a huge fiasco and um, and total, total failure. Um, I, I, I as as having written a book about floating cities, did a lot of research and continue to stay abreast of the developments in the field. And uh, yeah. Okay, well, so so did you come across anything pre-Snow Crash in terms of floating cities in science fiction? I did not, but that probably speaks more to my deficits than to any definitive lack of prior um, exploration. Um, but also, like, again, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure how much of this is, like, stuff we can blame on this book or Neil Stevenson, but, but like, 
Um, and, and I don't, rem- I wasn't like an activist in the nineties to be able to sort of like say what the state of xenophobia and anti-immigrant sentiment felt like and looked like and what forms it took in the nineties. But yeah, the idea of a giant raft full of refugees bringing a disease into America and that that was being orchestrated, um, uh, by, by a rich person to, you know, spread, uh, illness and destabilize and control, um, is pretty creepy. <laughs> Um, uh, in the in light of like the way where we are now um, in terms of like what we say and believe about immigrants and immigration um, as vector as a vector of a, of, of infection and destabilization, um, so not saying that that was his intent, but it aligns really uh, creepily with that with that discourse. Yeah, so so I guess I I don't know whether we should whether we say that he, you know sort of stepped in these things or whether if you're writing such big things involving world religions and world politics, is it like inevitable that you're going to, that there's going to be sort of like unfortunate resonances kind of no matter what direction you go or I don't know. What do you think about that, Sam? Uh, I mean, yeah, like the, the um, if you have, for example, all your characters be white, then you won't, you're less likely to make a catastrophic error in terms of like representation. Um, and so making your characters people of color um, is, is, is like, you know, if you, if you, if we're only writing white characters, then I think that's a failure of imagination and impoverishes the, the genre. So, you know, kudos to, to this author for, for trying to tackle tough topics and address a lot of things um, and make mistakes along the way. Uh, I'm certainly not, um, bashing the book or the author. Um, and, and definitely, yes, I, I, I agree that there's a certain extent to which um, attempting to stuff all the topics into the bag is going to mean that some of them will um, get mushed a little bit um, as you're taking your stuff home from the grocery store. This metaphor got, <laughs> got, a, got a little overstuffed. <laughs> you know, I think uh, the other thing I'd want to say is, you know, props to Stevenson for actually trying to imagine a global society full of people of different uh, colors and, and genders and abilities, I would point out, which is something that even today we're not great at always thinking through. Um, and and uh, I don't know if you remember what when he was writing for Wired magazine around that same time and he was writing, he was following um, the laying of fire, fiber optic cable across the world. And it was great. It was a series where he was really like talking to different people on the ground about their feelings about the coming of like the internet and stuff like that. And so I, I I do sort of see like some of that stuff he was doing in that journalism that he, I think he's trying to do here in, in the fiction as well. Mm-hmm. Well, it's kind of funny reading this in 2021, just seeing what he has to explain, you know, to an audience in 1992. Mm-hmm. And so it, it's like, you know, Hero's computer was connected to the wall by a fiber optic cable that could transfer a large amount of data from the, the world into his computer. And um I had a couple examples here, you know, like, it's like, you wouldn't believe in the future how fast you could do a credit card transfer. Uh, um, you know, like, like these assets in the virtual world, they didn't actually exist. Uh, you know, someone had to, they were just code, but they seemed real when you were, you know, it's like, I mean, obviously, like, he had to do this in 1992, because people didn't, weren't familiar with these concepts. But uh, it is funny just seeing how much of this stuff has just become, um, you know, second nature to us now. I think that in general, I mean, one of the things that's happened to me as I read science fiction as I get older, and and maybe this is also just because I'm, I I don't know, there's something about me just notices it more, but that 
I, I see more of the markers of, of the time in which something was written. Um, and so this is very much a book that the first time I read it, I read it as a book about the future. And now I read it, and I'm like, oh, this is such a 90s novel. And, and I don't think that diminishes it at all, but it, you're very much like, oh, like this this whole idea of like the like the suburbs and, and the relationship with the internet and like, it, it feels like you couldn't have been written at any other time. And, and, and that's part of the delight of it for me now. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's one thing I wanted to mention here about the, the burb glaives that I thought, you know, cause like a lot of times in science fiction, you come up with these ideas, but then, you know, if you're a really good writer, you imagine these second order consequences. And so one of the things I thought was actually really well done here was that he, he realizes that a burb glaive is not going to have the resources to have its own judicial system or its own prison system or anything like that. And so they don't imprison people. They have other, uh, punishments. So they're like flogging, confiscation of property, public humiliation, or tattooing, you know, things like poor impulse control on the forehead of, of people who've done things that are wrong. And that struck me as some, you know, sort of a good speculation about, about, you know, how, how a burb clave like this uh, would actually operate. Um, you know, what sort of what sort of limitations it would be under. Um, all right, cool. Anything else to say about the the raft or the the burb clave or this this uh, the world building or anything? Um, I would say that the raft is is definitely just. I mean, I I totally recognize some of the the xenophobic tropes that in some ways it's playing into, and and that again speaking to the idea of. Stevenson's limitations. It's, it's also this idea of that. I don't think that the way he talks about the refugees is like particularly, you know, virulently racist or anything like that. But there's the limitation is that fundamentally he doesn't see them as the main characters in the story. They're all, they're just sort of there for hero and as instruments in this plan and for a hero to kind of deal with and to be comic relief, but like they would never be the hero of this story. And I think that, you know, I, it, it does feel like a, a limitation at the same time, the raft is really cool. And I like all the scenes on the raft a lot and would have loved to have had, you know, even more kind of crazy things happening on it because I just, I, I guess it is the, the idea of the floating city is, I find it just incredibly compelling. And, and I think that there's a nice balance in the book of he, it, it's not, that, that you get enough of it that you can kind of visualize it and it feels real. But at the same time, it's, it's a relatively small part of the book that actually takes place on the raft. And, and so I, I definitely finished it wanting more. Yeah. And I mean, I, I think the idea of a floating city is cool. And I think the idea of, of living outside the control of any existing government is kind of cool. I mean, there's obviously ways in which that sinister or, you know, would have downsides, but it's also kind of an interesting thing to think about. You know, I interviewed um, the head of the Seasteading Institute. His name is Joe Quirk, and he wrote a book about seasteading. And there were, I thought it was really, really interesting, a lot of things he was saying. And like one of the things was that if you're out on the ocean, and, you know, if your house is like built on a, a floating platform in the ocean, if you don't like your neighbors, you can just kind of sail, sail away and move to a different part of the city. You know, you're not stuck next to those neighbors. And there were just a lot of things like that. You know, there's a lot of like environment, like good environmental things you could do. It sounded like, I don't know. I mean, I just think this, does anyone else see any of the appeal, like find the idea of a, a floating city just kind of cool and in, in a science fictional sort of way. Uh, we're assuming that this is not one run by L. Bob Reif. Yeah. Yeah. yeah no, I mean, <laughs> or Peter yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. 
I mean, yeah, sure. The idea of it is kind of kind of neat. I, gosh, I feel like I've read some other science fiction story with this kind of idea, but I can't I can't place it. It's just going to drive me nuts. I, I guess, like um, Sam was saying, you know that. So, Sam, is the floating city in your book? I forget. Is it is it sinister or is it uh, is there anything appealing about it? Oh, uh, I mean, it's it's a it's a city, so it's terrible and it's wonderful, um, and and full of full of full of awful stuff and 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 really cool stuff. Uh, and it's really just a, it's about my feelings about New York. Um, so even though it's floating in the Arctic Ocean, it's a hundred percent New York City. Um, I will say that one of the things that I I did do. Um, uh, prior to writing Blackfish City, um, I visited in Cambodia. There is a community of folks who are primarily Vietnamese refugees um, who are essentially a floating community. Um, they have boats with with um, they have like a church and a school and all these things on floats, um, and they have like a convenience store that sells lottery tickets and gasoline, and everyone drives around and like um, you know they have like alligator farms and. Um, it's amazing. It's also like deeply tragic and not a super high standard of living. And um, in large part, they're there because, um, you know, uh, in their ability to land and live on la- live on land because of immigration issues um, are, is limited. Um, so it's a, it's a cool idea. I think in practice, it's 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 a, the kind of scenario that would only evolve by necessity and probably not be super great. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lisa, were you going to say something? Oh, I actually I looked something up about floating cities while we were talking about them because um, I was wondering why I couldn't think of any. There's not a ton of them in the history of science fiction. It turns out. Um, Jules Verne had one. It was like a gigantic ship, though. It was like, but it sort of hosted a whole floating city. But um, we don't see them a lot in science fiction. And I suspect that's because, right, often floating cities are associated with uh, impoverished or marginalized peoples um, across the world. And science fiction, especially historically, was kind of about the winners at the center of the world. And there was no need, right, to build a floating city, especially not if you could go to space. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, well, so I don't know if... um... Uh, in, if, in the contemporary publishing, if, uh, you know, too many people have, too many other people have written about floating cities, but uh, if if they have, I'd be curious to know about it. And if they haven't, it seems like there's some great, uh, you know, great potential there, you know, to how to show that from um, the point of view of different kinds of people. Right. Um, all right. So some other kind of interesting science fiction stuff in this book is you have uh, the rat things, which are these sort of guard robots that are part robot and part like a thing. I think they have the biological brains of dogs inside them. Uh, I'm not sure exactly. I wasn't clear exactly how much of them is biological and how much is uh, mechanical. Um, and there's this really, there's like this rail gun uh, called reason, uh, which is just shown to be, to be really devastating. I guess that another thing I'll say that I really liked in this book was the action. I thought it was really, really well written. Um, you know, so, so when one of the, one of these characters shoots up, he shoots up a, uh, like a ship and I guess later another character shoots up a, an aircraft carrier with this rail gun and just the way it's described is, is really, really cool. And, you know, and I don't, I don't know how, um, how common the idea of rail guns was in 1992. I have a feeling this novel might've done a lot to popularize it. I'm not sure, but, um, I don't know, Lisa, are there any of those, any of those other like technological things that, uh made an impression on you from this? 
Yeah, well, I like the rat things too. I think there's an, they have an interesting debate about sort of the ethics of using, it's, um, it is dogs. And, and in fact, it's a specific breed of dogs that I, I remembered reading it today and thinking, oh, that was interesting. And uh, might, like maybe even bull, bull terriers or something. Maybe it was bull. Yeah, maybe it was bull terrier or something like that. Um, and it, you know, I mean, I, I also like the fact that you get part of the story narrated from the point <laughs> of view of one of them. And I think that that's pretty cool, actually, right? Like, you see other cyberpunks experimenting with um, animal characters, um, but but um, and, and it's interesting to sort of write to and uh, and other science fiction authors. It's always interesting how you give animals voice or uh, thought, and I think that that's you know, a cool experiment. And I'm sure if we poked at it enough, it would have its limits. But again, it's one more neat thing that Stevenson tries. And then of course, you know, the dentata is kind of funny. Um, it's it, right this so the device that YT has uh, her anti rape device, and um, which ends up playing a, a kind of part in, in, in the plot at one point towards the end. Um, I, I always was struck by that it actually struck me as a really kind of practical uh, idea. Yeah, I think there might be things like that. I mean, oh, I'm no. There's nothing you can put that that you can put inside your vagina that will allow you to like put a needle in someone who tries to rape you. That would be pretty great, but I don't think there's anything that great. Huh. Uh, <laughs> I feel like I read I, I read about, but I, I'm not. I, I'll have to research that. Well, I'm I'm telling you, it's not like common knowledge amongst women. Like, hey, you need to go get a dentata because this is the thing now. So <laughs> if it's there, it's probably pretty still theoretical or expensive. Yeah. Um, okay. So, uh, Sam, any, anything else you want to add about any of these technologies in, in Snow Crash? Um, yeah, I mean, I think that I love rat thing. I just want the rat thing YT adventure, like, like buddy, um, film, uh, story. Um, and I actually think it's really interesting because in a lot of ways, I think that rat thing is one of, is like, might be the character who comes the closest to having like, heart and an emotional arc and like a real like i don't know who made me really feel things like everybody else is so like you know they've got like three pairs of sunglasses on they're so cool <laughs> um and and rat thing is like i'm a squirmy little little um soft creature inside nuclear murder shell um and and i and i love i love this person who's who is nice to me um and and i think it 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 it, it the I think the, the the novel would really have benefited from giving that same kind of like, I don't know, emotional core to some of the other characters who, who don't, I'm not saying that they feel like cut out. Um, but, you know, I think, I think that in, in, in a lot of ways, this is a book that's kind of too cool for feelings. Um, and, and I think I, I, it, it would have left a deeper, like rereading it now. And, and I think this speaks to something Anthony said earlier about it's like, it's fun, but it's not deep and it's not really like, cutting you to the quick in the way that like, for me, a novel like Neuromancer does of like, I feel, I feel things really deeply for these characters because they're so damaged and what they want is so complicated. Well, it's funny. Yeah. yeah like, it, it's funny. Yeah. Like the, um, there's like one sort of throwaway chapter written from the point of view of this, like Lieutenant in the mafia who like goes to deliver some um, package himself and ends up totally screwing up. And I felt like he was like, yeah, like like him and Rat Thing were the characters. And I guess kind of the mom, uh, YT's mom, too. Like there's a couple of sort of side characters who, who feel like they have more kind of, uh, you know, deal, are, are sort of dealing with everyday struggles and, you know, sort of, uh, you know, more anxious about their place in the world and stuff like that. So, yeah, I mean, if, if he could have brought some of that to our primary characters, you know, yeah, that 
I, I think I would have uh, liked that. But um, uh, Lisa, were you going to say so- were you going to say something? Oh, I was just thinking. You know, uh, in the end, right, the rat thing transcends its own programming, right? And it jumps. It does the impossible, and it jumps over the the fence. It can't jump over. And I was just thinking, it's like, you kind of want more of that with the other characters. You want them to kind of do the impossible, maybe try to transcend their own sort of three pairs of sunglasses. Yeah, exactly. Right. Um, I don't know. I just wanted them to become something a little more than what they were. And, and, and they didn't, but that's okay. It is a cyberpunk story (laughs) and and you don't always get like incredible emotional arcs. Um, What was else? You know what, on the raft, we were talking about world building. I just wanted to say this. I, what I really felt was missing, you know, and I think I felt this maybe even the first time, but I really felt it this time is Juanita's story. Like, mm-hmm. why don't we know what happens to her on the raft? It feels like that's going to be so important, especially she's like, you got to read the Inanna story. You have to have like a sense of what I'm doing. And, and yet I don't feel like we really learn a ton about her time there. You know, we get a little bit at the end when she sort of gives Hero the short synopsis, but I don't know. Yeah, I it's, there was it's, like, it's like there. a page and a half or something. No, I, I totally agree yeah. with that. Yeah. I, I mean, now that you say it, I wonder if we should have switched to one, you know, had like chapters from Juanita's point of view, you know, starting like around I, halfway through the book or something. I think we should have. Yeah, um, I think we need it. Because I also felt like we didn't see enough of Rife and his organization. Like, you know, he sort of shows up at the end as this villain in a helicopter. But like, I don't know. I felt like there should, there, we, sh- we needed to get to know him and like the, like, I don't know if, I don't remember if we ever actually saw the Reverend Wayne at all. Like, it just, it just felt like that, you know, like the villains were kind of, off stage too much to me. Does anyone, anyone just Anthony, do you agree? Disagree? I, I agree. Although I guess it didn't bother me as much. Um, I get, you know, the, I think, I forget, I think it was Sam who was talking about sort of rife as kind of the person pulling the strings. And then Raven is kind of the, the villain who's actually doing stuff. He's, you know, on the page the most. And I, and I found Raven to be like, um, you know, uh, just a really fun character. And, and it was interesting how it kind of went from, you know, in one context being kind of the cool boy, the cool bad boy boyfriend, but then like in every other context, like he's this insane murderous force who cannot be stopped. And everyone, you know, is sort of turned into like just this bag of blood in all these different ways. Um, so it's true that I didn't, I never like got a real sense of like what Rife wanted or was never really invested in, in that plan. Um, but it didn't necessarily bother me that much. I mean, also this discussion has made me think about how this book is, we were talking about how long it was. And even so it has this odd balance of the things that Stevenson is really willing to luxuriate in and spend, I think, as you said, 65 pages talking about Sumerian mythology and then other things that are just mentioned once or rushed through and then, um, you know, kind of impatiently. I think there's a lot of stuff that he's very impatient with. I mean, even the, it just ends very quickly. Like as soon as everything's resolved, it's just, there's not even like a a moment between Hero and YT where they're like, Hey, we just saved the world. It, It just kind of, wraps up very quickly. Then with Juanita, she kind of comes on stage, explains what she's been doing, you know, gives Hero his mission. And then their whole relationship is just wrapped up in a couple of lines of dialogue where he says, will you be my girl after this? And she says, yes, of course. Now let's go save the world. And I think that there's a real impatience with a lot of the character stuff. Um, and, and it just fundamentally does not seem to be where Stevenson's interest is. 
Well, he says in the afterward, he says that this was a really hard book to write, which I definitely, I definitely believe that. Uh, you know, it's it's so ambitious and so long, and as we've said, involves so many different ideas and, and types of characters and everything. But yeah, I, I did sort of feel like at the end, like maybe he just like ran out of steam, you know, and like like the ending, yeah, it did it did like there's just like at the end, there's so much stuff going on to wrap up, and it, it sort of felt pretty abrupt the way it ended and like we never actually even found out if david came out of his coma or anything like i don't maybe because i'm named david i I don't (laughs) keep going on about him but uh real (laughs) um but like does everyone agree with that that the ending felt sort of abrupt or or what Uh, i thought it was abrupt and it's interesting right is cyberpunk often comes to abrupt endings like stories will sort of skitter to a quick end um and you're right, and things don't always happen quite the way you expect. Like at, right, at the end of Neuromancer, like nothing really changes. Like the like the computers say, things are just things. And so, you know, part of me thinks, you know, it, it just feels kind of like a cyberpunk hard stop. Like we told the story, and now we're done. So whatever. But uh, yeah, it was weird. I thought this time that Hero and YT never say anything to each other again. It's, but we also sort of it, again that was another relation. Well, we talked about this before that we wanted more of them too. Like at the end, you find out they've been sharing all these meals together all over Los Angeles. And it's like, did we ever see any of those meals? Because those would have been fun scenes to have read. But Yeah. So so are there any, can you think of any cyberpunk novels that like totally nailed the, the ending? Like, nailed the landing. Oh, I think that Gibson does when he tell when he basically, when, when Winter Mutant Neuromancer tell Case at the end, like you don't get to be the cowboy who comes in and saves the day. It's just going to, things just keep chugging on like they are. Like, I feel like that to me feels, it's sort of, I like the way the story acknowledges its own abrupt ending and it, it, it acknowledges its refusal to give you any kind of pleasure. So that feels appropriate. Whereas here, I think we're all frustrated because we, we feel like we deserved a little more at the end and there's maybe no meta reason why we didn't get it. Well, this is, I mean, this, I think this novel is obviously influenced by Neuromancer, right? And even like, you know, hero, yeah. he's like, you know, he owes money to people and he's like doing this sort of low level job and right. he used to be a great hack. I mean, there's like a lot of ways in which this, yeah. you know, obviously sort of is patterned on. Yeah, I, I actually wrote about that in my first book is I actually think in some ways it's a real response to uh, Gibson's sometimes. Um, I, I like it because I'm a sucker for utopian thinking, but I think Gibson is often kind of naively utopian about the ability of like marginalized communities to resist uh, incorporation and destruction by progress or engagement with capitalism. And, you know, and, and I think that part of what this book does and what I like is that it sort of explores how, how likely that would be, how, how can you really stay out of the nets of capitalism or not like that? Mm-hmm. I mean, I so also, how, how, how do you uh, contrast or compare this with Neuromancer? Well, it's interesting because there's a direct quote um, of uh, Count Zero, the sequel to Neuromancer, where, um, uh, YT talks about somebody quote doing a Wilson into the Crete, oh, um, right. which uh, that's what, one of the chapters of Count Zero is called Bobby pulls a Wilson, which is like a term for when you mess up catastrophically um, in as a as a uh, code jockey and you flat. I don't know if it's a flat line, but it's definitely really really bad. Um, and so yeah, there's a direct there's a, there's a direct quote. There's definitely I, I I agree, Lisa. There's a lot of like response to and engagement with um, yeah. Gibson and 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 the Sprawl trilogy. I think that um, where the ending of this book leaves me unsatisfied is where Gibson's endings almost never do, which is that like. Um, you know, these people don't, you know, there's, there's, there's no real difference between hero 
um, or YT page one and and page uh, last. Um, exactly. And and like honestly, like Raven, who um, I really love, and who like the there's the line in there about like he sliced both the femoral arteries, like slicing off the bottom, and all his blood fell out of him, like slicing the bottom off a styrofoam cup. Is like one of those haunting, brilliant things that that has messed with me ever since I first read it. Um, and so he's this great character and this really great villain um, and and uh, really off screen um, and kind of unceremoniously gets killed by a secondary character um, uh, in a way that I didn't I didn't love. And, and also like Raven also gets the thing that that Hero and YT don't, which is like you know, he's, he's, he's in love with somebody. He, he, he cares about someone. Um, and it's really not a smart <laughs> move. Um, and it's this person who has this like massively orchestrated plot against America that in a lot of ways gets, um, sidetracked by love, which is dumb, but human. Um, so, you know, not, not a, not a perfect character or representation, but someone who I want, I would have, I would have loved to have like, had more um you know justice uh although are we sure that raven dies because that was my impression in previous reading readings but reading it this time i thought oh it, it's kind of open uh, whether or not he dies mm-hmm. it's left open yeah. yeah doesn't it say something like um somebody drove off in a car and then somebody else got another car and drove off after them or something well thought- no he's in the helicopter and it's falling right no, he's about to basically. He's trying to kill Uncle Enzo, and right. like, they're confronting oh, that's each right. other. Right. And then right. the chapter ends. Well, the chapter ends with um, Enzo having shattered um, his weapon, and then he's like, "I prefer steel myself because it's not made of glass." And so, yes, I could totally believe <laughs> Raven killed him because in in a physical fight, even without a weapon, Raven's the kind of character who could fuck somebody up with a weapon. Um, but again, I also imagined that he was dead in a way that you're right is probably not um, 100% certain. Yeah, I thought it was ambiguous, but, you know, I only read this once. But I, I, I thought I thought it was meant to be we're not sure who was chasing who or or, or I don't know, maybe I misread that. But. Um, but so. Um, I, don't, I don't know how do people because like this book is, um, you know, it's like on the time list of like a hundred best books of the 20th century or something. I mean, it's, it's like super well, um, uh, you know, super well admired. It's, it seems like, and I don't know, it seems like we have a lot of concerns about it. I mean, that might just be when you, what happens when you spend 90 minutes critiquing a book, (laughs) but, um, I don't know. Do people feel like this book, like, I don't know, does it deserve to be on the hundred best books of the, of the 20th century kind of lists or, 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 you know, looking at it now from the vantage of, of 2021, are we sort of, do we think it's cool, but not, maybe not, not, uh, doesn't impress us as much as, as it would, as it impressed people back in the nineties. I would say the latter for sure that, I mean, I, I don't have a problem with it being on the list because it's any list like that is sort of inherently arbitrary, but I do remember reading that list and there's really only a handful of science, I mean, not just science fiction books, but books from the genre, like versus something like 1984. Like I think there's like Ubik and Neuromancer and, and Snow Crash. Clearly I've thought about this. Um, and I'm like, I, you know, I, I think that Snow Crash is not like, I can think of so many other science fiction books. So if you think about it as sort of like being a representative of the genre on that list, or like one of the greatest science fiction books of this 20th century, uh, I don't 
think it's quite that good. I think it's very good and people should read it. And I'm, you know, don't, I think it absolutely deserves all of its success. Um, but even, you know, we've talked about it repeatedly in comparison with Neuromancer. I think the Neuromancer is a much greater novel, whereas Snow Crash is very creative and very fun, but, but not ultimately not of that stature. Mm. Uh, Lisa, top 100 yeah. book of the 20th century. Now, I'm going to go with what everyone else is saying. Definitely uh, one of the top 100 cyberpunk novels you should (laughs) read, right? Um, And and I don't even mean to be catty like that. I think it's actually, if you're someone who wants to learn a lot about, you know, the history and development of cyberpunk, I actually do think it's important to read because I think it is an important intervention. And, you know, it's the moment before cyberpunk really becomes a a global... uh, uh, storytelling mode where where all kinds of people of uh, you know authors of color LGBTQ plus authors are really going to start using it and and I think it's cool his you know it's a cool piece of history I'm a literary historian and I think that it really is of its moment in a way that's really telling um, and I think that you know one thing I really uh, was driven home to me as we're talking is I do love the world building it's so inventive right it just uh, I think we want our characters with uh, been all been spoiled by like the new the new wave and the last 50 years of science fiction. I actually just need apparently a little bit more emotional development with my characters. Gosh, darn it. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, um, you know, like I, I just read this and um, I mean, I, I definitely had this very strong feeling reading it like, oh, my God, I wish I had read this earlier. You know, like I really feel, fool- you know, because I mean, this whole thing with these with these book um you know, book clubs have been like, here's, I had my list of, uh, you know, science fiction books that I'm most embarrassed to admit I haven't read. And this is the last book on the, my sort of tier one book, a uh, list of books that I'm just like absolutely humiliated to admit that I never read before. <laughs> so there are now, there are no books that I'm that embarrassed, science fiction books that I'm that embarrassed to admit I haven't read. This was the last one, but I'm, yeah, but just reading it, I'm like, man, I wish there's, cause there's, yeah, like, cause this is such a step forward in, in conceptually in so many ways. And just, you know, like, like here's, here's, I'll, I'll just read you a little bit. This, this is my list of people who were like inspired by this book. It's like Jeff Bezos, John Carmack, Michael Abrash, Palmer Luckey, Reed Hoffman, Peter Thiel, uh, Sergey Brin, uh, Avi Barzeev, who did uh, design Google Earth, Mark Zuckerberg. I mean, like, I feel like if I had read this back in 1992, maybe I could have been a billionaire today. And because I, because <laughs> I didn't, I just sort of totally missed the boat on on what this book was, uh, the future that this book was, uh, was, was pointing so many people who aren't me toward. Well, David, I read it in 93 or 94 and I just became an English professor. So there <laughs> you know, was no guarantee it was going to take you to millions. Um, but it was exciting to read at the time. Um, Anthony, do you remember that too? It was cool. It, yeah, it, it felt, felt fresh. It felt really fresh and, and contemporary. And I mean, I think the, beyond the, the technology of, of the metaverse, which, I think it's almost sort of striking how we haven't really talked much about that because it does feel like, oh, sure, sure. Like it's just, you put on glasses, you go to a virtual world, we get it. Um, But like, I I think the other thing that I imagine is why so many of those, um, you know, investors and CEOs, it made it such a mark on them is, is I think that unlike a lot of, and and particularly Gibson, right, is, is a writer who, he has a lot of hackers in his books, but really they're sort of hackers out of his imagination where he's taken, um, you know, they're, 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 they're Hammett, they're Chandler characters, they're outlaw characters then with this sort of technological overlay. Whereas you get the sense that Stevenson is somebody who spent a lot of time on his computer talking to hackers. And I think in a lot of ways it embodies that um, Silicon Valley hacker mentality in, in ways that are very interesting. I think it, 
it, it's also part of what's dated the book that he portrays this kind of hacker ethos in a way that feels it, it's hard to look at it, to admire it in the way, same way that I think he does in this and especially in Cryptonomicon. But I think that, that there is something of like this feeling of like, oh, this is our book. This is the book that speaks to our values and somebody who really gets us. Well, and Gibson said that he basically didn't know anything about computers uh, when he wrote Neuromancer. And Neil Stevenson clearly knows a lot about computers. And I mean, uh, there, there's something in the afterword where he talks about like writing, I forget, like, because they're originally going to do this as a, uh, uh, like a, um, you know, computer generated comic book, basically. And he was talking about actually writing programs to like none of the program, the graphics programs on the market did what they wanted. So he was just going to, he was just coding himself the the stuff to create the graphics. So, I mean, he clearly like knows how to program, like he knows, he knows this world. Um, and, and I think you're right that that has sort of upsides and downsides and is, and, and the upside is that it, it brings a lot of authority to the book, but then the downside is that it fixes it in a particular place and time a lot more. Um, you know, a lot more directly than, than the Neuromancer, which seems more timeless. Um, exactly. Yeah. Um, Sam, anything else you want to add about any of this stuff? Uh, I think that, um, I mean, lists of a hundred greatest books are always BS and, um, you know, there are some, like, you know, we all, we all love the books we love and every great book is desperately flawed. And so I think that, um, it definitely wouldn't make my cut of the hundred greatest novels um, of the of the twentieth century, and um, I think, but I, I think it's a really fun book. I think it's a really smart book, even if it's stupid in many ways. Um, and I think that uh, it's 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 a fun it's a fun book that in in a lot of ways um, is a really fascinating window on science fiction history and the 90s and technology in the 90s and popular perceptions of um and and the sort of like building blocks of the nightmare world that we live in now like you know it's fascinating to me learning like you just said that the creator of google earth was influenced by this book because there's the whole thing about like the earth program with which he can use to see anything anywhere in the world. And so, yeah, um, there's lots of things about the world today that are horrible that I think you can sort of see the seeds in, but also like some really awesome things too. So influential in science fiction and influential in our present hellscape. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, Sam, and you said that you haven't read any other Stevenson books. And like I said, I only read Reem D. Um, I forget, like Anthony, you said you read Cryptonomic. Had you, had you, have you read any ones besides Cryptonomicon? Uh, and then I've read The Diamond Age, although I read that around the same time I read Snow Crash and haven't gone back to it. So my memory of The Diamond Age is very fuzzy, whereas Cryptonomicon I read in the last few years. And, and so I remember pretty well and, and would recommend. I mean, it has, I think, many of the same flaws as Snow Crash, but also many of the same virtues multiplied because it's a thousand page novel. But um, it, it still is a lot of fun and really interesting. Do you remember? Do you remember whether you would recommend I read Diamond Age or not? Um, I I liked it, but but I really could not say much more about it. That I, I do think tonally it's a little bit different because it has a little bit more of a, a steampunk vibe to it. But beyond that, I I think it's a little bit more atypical compared to what I get the sense most of his books are like. But my, the memory beyond just like, yeah, I think it's worth revisiting. Um, I couldn't really say much more. Mm -hmm. See, so Lisa, do you, do you know I, what? I can. Read? I like the Diamond Age. I've read it. 
Um, and I actually taught it just not the whole thing, but the, for, uh, the opening chapters a few years ago in a class on nanotechnology and literature. Um, he does it. And, and it's great uh, for, for that kind of thing. It's I have a feeling rereading it now, it may end up dating in the same way Snow Crash does for the simple reason that like he takes such a deep dive into thinking about nanotechnology and talking about it. And, you know, the state of nanotechnology has moved on, not as tremendously as the state of computers, but but even so. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised if it felt kind of dated, but but it's imaginative and it's exciting and it's it's actually very beautiful. And as always, such a strong beginning to his books. Um, and it does actually, I, I, Anthony, doesn't it have some of the same um, sort of general ideas as Snow Crash? Like there's that drummer society. So once again, you get this sort of weird, um, almost pre-linguistic kind of like thinking through like what are other kinds of languages and ways that people could communicate to produce information. So there's a little bit of that in it, I thought. Right. Um, well, I'm, I, I, I was before this, I was just rereading the, uh, the Wikipedia entry on, on Snow Crash to make sure I hadn't forgotten anything important. They do mention, I think, some common threads. Um, but again, it, just because it's, it's been so long since I've read it, um, I, I simply have to say, I, I think that's right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I'm actually, when I was working on Stevenson, I actually read all his early books. So back when he was a postmodernist, has, have any of you read The Big U, his postmodernist no. novel? Uh, it's a postmodern postmodernist comedy. If you read The Big U, then Snow Crash makes a lot more sense in terms of like its pacing and stuff. He's really like, you know, once upon a time he wanted to be a, a sort of more high literary writer. And he's he's kind of got that postmodernist thing going, that encyclopedic kind of maximalist uh, thing like David Foster Wallace does. Yeah, because it's like so, a campus novel, right? Yes, it is. It's a campus novel. It's a little bit science fictional. It's definitely a sort of surreal campus novel for sure. Um, and then I read his techno thriller Zodiac, which actually I like a lot. If, and I've reread it. It's still pretty good. Um, very cool. And uh, he wrote, he co-wrote a techno thriller with his uncle called Cyborg. I think that's what it's called. Um, and it's about the what if is what if the guy who's running for president and it's basically the Biden Trump scenario. And what if your Biden candidate died, but you, there were three people in the world who knew how to basically resurrect him and run him like a flesh robot <laughs> so that uh, we could make sure that you don't have this like dictator take over the America. It's a, it's a crazy book, but it's, it's, it's kind of fun, actually. Yeah, I mean, I mean, reading this definitely made me want to read more Stevenson. I mean, I just wish they weren't so long because I, you know, I just don't have time for to... Oh, so maybe, so maybe I'll read one of the, maybe I'll read one yeah. of the early ones. Yeah. Um, all right. And so speaking of uh, time, we are all out of time for this panel. So uh, if anyone has any final thoughts, we could do those now. So Sam, any final thoughts on this whole experience of reading Snow Crash? No, I'm grateful to you for giving me a prompt to reread it. Um, I still found it really wonderful, uh, even if not as amazing and mind blowing as, as I, as I once thought. Um, yeah. Uh, Lisa, final thoughts? the same thing it was really cool to reread it and it, it really does such a great job of plugging into the technological and uh political and cultural scene of the 1990s it was it was fun to revisit that and i love that sam used the word wonderful because that was literally the first word that was came to my mind as well it was it was wonderful to revisit it's a wonderful romp 
And uh, it's a ripping good read. And it remains that. And I think that that's really awesome. Yeah, and I, I'm definitely glad I read it. And I mean, I would definitely recommend people read at least the first 200 pages or so. I mean, I think once, I mean, I guess we had a disagreement about how interesting the um, ancient Sumeria stuff is. But I mean, I think all the stuff that I really loved involving the, yeah, the, the sort of anarcho-capitalist future and sort of the colorful characters and stuff, you really sort of get a taste of that in the first 200 pages. So I would definitely read at least that and, uh, you know, at least... Uh, expose yourself to that. And, um, you know, you can keep reading if you want, but at least, you know, get that taste uh, of the stuff that, that is really, really uh, brilliant and inspired about this book. One thing uh, I'll actually, oh, can I just say one yeah, thing yeah. In, 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 in favor of the second half of the book is it actually does a cool job thinking through history and about the weight of history on the present and the future, right? Because all of this stuff is happening because of things that happened back in World War II and Vietnam. And it kind of traces that back. So that's interesting. If you're a history buff, you might really get down with the second half. How about that? All right. And how about Anthony? Final thought. Um, I would say just to reemphasize just the kind of the wonderfulness of it is also, I think that it just has one of the best first chapters of any novel. It's just such an amazing introduction to hero and this world and this pizza delivery mission. Um, and it just makes me happy every time I reread it. And um, I think also that the book is just full of these little, not just like world building things, but just wonderful little bits of writing and comedy. There is a passage towards the end where Hero thinks about how every man has appeared in his life where he thinks he could become the ultimate badass in the world and all the things that would be required in order to become the ultimate badass. And that is just one of my favorite pieces of writing anywhere. And, and I've like, never forgotten it in, in 20 years. And so I think for, if no, for no other reason, Snow Crash is worth reading for that. Yeah, I don't know if we even really said, but yeah, the prose is super stylish. I mean, super, you know, beautiful. I mean, Sam mentioned the thing about the, the cutting the bottom out of the coffee cup. I mean, there was a line near the end that struck me about like, it was like her heart flopped around like a bunny in a Ziploc bag or something like that. It's, <laughs> it's, it's like, yeah, it's, it's, it's great. Uh, just on a sentence by yeah. sentence level, especially as I was saying, uh, some of the action scenes uh, are really, really well done. So yeah, definitely worth reading for that as well. Um, all right, cool. But so why don't we wrap things up there? So we've been speaking with Anthony Ha, Sam J. Miller, and Lisa Yazik. So thanks everyone so much for joining us. Thank thanks you. Thanks for having me. Thanks. And that was our panel. So big thanks again to Anthony Ha, Sam J. Miller, and Lisa Yazik for joining us on the show. And remember that Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please support us on Patreon over at patreon.com geeks or via PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com crowdfunding. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.